I'll never forget. We were in Vegas, and it probably was the end of April, maybe beginning of May. I can't remember. And so I'll never forget. He was staring at a kind of a vanity mirror, like a, a skinny, tall vanity mirror right next to the the door to leave the hotel room. And he was like opening and closing one eye at a time. So like closing his left eye looking, right, close his right eye looking. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I think I have a brain tumor. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he just kind of kept it and he's like, all right, let's go play some craps. I'm Nora McNerney, and this is Terrible Thanks for Asking. And that was Dan talking about his best friend, his bestie, his bud, his friend to the end, his brother from another mother. That was Dan talking about Darren. Friendships can be as deep and as meaningful and as complicated as any other relationship. Unlike family, we do choose our friends. And just like romantic relationships, sometimes that choosing just comes down to convenience, proximity to people at the same place at the same time. Some friendships are surface level. Some are really deep and important and formative. Some last for a season of life. Some of them last forever or as close to forever as you can get. By the time Darren looks in the mirror and says something about having a brain tumor on their annual bro trip to Vegas... Dan and Darren have known each other for 13 years. They met in college, and their friendship could have been one of those just-for-a-season kind of friendships because, primarily, they were connected by physical proximity. Because we pledged the same fraternity together. You know, they make fun of you, they bust your chops a lot, but it's really just, you know, they talk about pledge classes, and oftentimes those are the people that you become closest to because you're together almost every day. So that's what happened with Dan and Darren. They spent all that time pledging with one another, and then they both made the fraternity, and then they roomed next to each other sophomore year, and then they just spent time with each other in the way that you do in college. Maybe not always in really big, meaningful moments, but mostly just those in-between ones. Going to class, eating meals, going to football games. You know, just hanging out together. We used to call each other a-hole all the time in a in an affectionate way. And, you know, I, so many different examples, but it's, it's almost in how you say the word, you'd be like, a-hole, you know, <laughs> if I make fun of him, a-hole, you know, that's the best compliment is to call each other a-holes. In college, these two a-holes were a bit of an odd couple. They didn't have a whole lot of life experience in common. Dan had grown up in New Hope, Minnesota, which is a little suburb outside of Minneapolis known for, I don't know really what it's known for. There's a lot of split-level homes. It looks basically like any other American suburb that was primarily built in the 60s, 70s. But Darren, Darren grew up in Chicago. Okay, he grew up in Highland Park, Illinois, but he would tell you he grew up in Chicago. He's like one of those people. But even that You know, when you live in suburban Minnesota, is like saying you grew up in Manhattan. Trust me, Chicago, it's a big deal to the rest of the Midwest. We kind of resent it a little bit. We're like, oh, my God, they think they're so cool because they're from Chicago. But also, we're like, yeah, they're cool. They're from Chicago. Darren was cool. And Dan was just very Minnesota. I thought dressing up nice was 
blue jeans and a blue denim shirt from The Gap. Like, that was my definition of, of oh, well, if I have to look a little bit nicer, that's what I would look like. Um, he was just a little more worldly, sophisticated uh, from his upbringing compared to mine. He knew what sushi was. I did not know what sushi was <laughs> entering college, uh, just based on my upbringing. Darren was worldly in that Chicago, I know what sushi is kind of way. And he was also just a good dude. The, the organizer, a leader, the president of the fraternity, he just was such a, a go-getter. Um, positive energy and just liked to have a good time. But he was also, you know, really a really good student as well. And whether we were... At fraternity parties together, going to the football games together, going to the bars together, um, playing intramural sports together. He was just such a positive vibe in the room, always. He was just the very put-together, eye-on-the-prize kind of guy. He knew what he wanted, and I think he knew what he wanted right away. Dan, he didn't have that. His future seemed a little fuzzier, but Darren's was crystal clear. This is the 90s, and what Darren wanted was to make deals. He wanted to be Gordon Gecko. I just think success was really something that was important to him, and he really had that image of a young businessman not afraid to take on the New York world to do well. So after college, Darren headed off to New York to be with his girlfriend and take on the business world. And Dan was not really sure what he wanted to do, but he did have a girlfriend who was from New Jersey. So he followed her out there. We both knew some people. Obviously, you know, he had his girlfriend and her family and other friends. I had my girlfriend and her family and some other friends and family as well. But the great thing about it is, we would like see each other almost every weekend. I would go to New York City and we just started to grow up together. Darren became the kind of successful business guy he had always wanted to be. And he kept helping Dan expand his horizons and learn important things like... We'd go out to dinner and I would learn that I can't get into this bar if I'm wearing sneakers. Dan and Darren married their girlfriends and for various reasons, all of them ended up moving to Chicago. They were grown-ups now. And that's where Dan and Darren's friendship grew up. They bought condos. They started to have kids. Dan became a dad first. He and his wife had a little boy. And Darren's wife was pregnant, too. So the, the bris is when a Jewish baby on their, on their eighth day is, is circumcised. And we get a call. I get a call from Darren maybe a half hour before. It's about, he goes... I can't come to your bris. I can't come, sorry. I'm like, why? He's like, because we're having a baby. You know, and they were on the way to the hospital. And so, uh, you know, unfortunately, they were not they were not able to make it to that event. But they had a very good reason. Um, so, yeah, just having our kids, our oldest kids together, was just great. Sometimes marriage and children make it hard to maintain friendships. But for Dan and Darren, their friendship grew alongside their families. They had kids at the same time. And that time they spent together shifted from young guy stuff to dad stuff. There was a, 
the Lakeview YMCA and we took a, a swim class with our kids. I don't know how old they were, but it was one or even, you know, even smaller. So the dads are in the pool with the kids and there was this, you know, the instructor comes in and it's this like just a skinny guy, a short skinny guy, but with the most massive beard. And the class would start up as he would get in your face and he was like, you know, they would sing this song. Who has come to swim today, swim today, swim today? Who has come to swim today and what's your name? And then they, the guy would just be in your face staring at the kid and every kid was, you know, terrified. So you hope, Owen, oh, Owen's come to swim today. And then they go through swim the whole thing today, and then they go to the next one. today. <laughs> right. And then they go to the next one. And then it was so great because Natalie, his oldest, would never say her name. And then Darren would be like, Natalie. Oh, Natalie has come. It, it just it was so much fun. And then we'd go out to breakfast afterwards and have Mickey Mouse pancakes with powdered sugar on it. When they weren't hanging out with or without their kids, Dan and Darren would call every day. They would text. They would still prank each other because yes, they were grown up, but they weren't too grown up. I had a uh, virgin Atlantic as a client, the the Richard Branson company. And like I'll never forget one time I got a voicemail at work. It's hello Dan, Richard Branson here. Looking for some fucking clips. Call me back, please. And I'm like, oh shit. Like, was that Richard Brant? I'm like, I'm like, I, I I didn't even think it could have been Darren. Because I know that this guy was pretty eccentric and would just call anybody. So I called my contact there and I remember taking my old big cell phone and trying to play it into the, into the, the, my real phone to call my contact. They were like, is it possible that Richard Branson called me looking for a clip? Classic Darren impersonating an eccentric bajillionaire. One of the things that Dan and Darren looked forward to every year was an annual trip to Vegas with their whole crew from college. Darren and I had almost like a sub-trip within the trip because not everybody hung out together the whole time. And so, you know, we have group dinners, which were great, just full of laughter, sitting by the pool, hanging out. But we we enjoyed gambling. We were craps buddies. That's just something that we, we did together. So that year, in 2005, when Darren looked at himself in the mirror and wondered if he had a brain tumor, that was just a thing friends say. I'm like, shut up. All right, let's go, right. you know. But yeah. he said it. I mean, he's like, let's go play some craps. Right, and you're like, good. So yeah. it was more, yeah, it was it was done. Like the way the way people are like, oh my God, I feel like shit, I'm probably dying. And you're like. Yeah. Later that month, when they got home from Vegas, Darren went to the eye doctor to have his vision checked. And the doctor told him he had to go to the ER right away. Darren went, and then he called Dan. I get the phone and I'm like, yo, what's up? And he was crying. But we never had cried to each other before. I I actually thought he was almost joking. I'm like, what's going on? And he, in whatever words he used, said they, they found some sort of mass or something pressing on his optic nerve. And he, and he had to you know, they knew he would have to have emergency surgery. Initial diagnosis wasn't declared. No one knew. They just knew it was an emergency. And I'm like, what? And I'm like, all right, I'm going to come down and, and see you. Dan rushed to the ER. 
He found Darren's room and opened the dividing curtain where his friend was sitting. Darren's wife, Allison, left the two of them alone to talk for a minute. He was in his bed, kind of like just, I can't, I don't know what's going on. This is crazy. And the first thing he said to me is, please go make sure Allison's okay. And so I'm like, okay. So I went and I, I gave her a hug. And again, nobody knew what was going on. That joke that Darren made in Vegas about having a brain tumor, it wasn't a joke anymore. Darren did have a brain tumor, and he was going to need brain surgery. I had in my hand a Ziploc bag, and I don't know why I did this, but I brought some casino chips, because I used to buy $1 chips and bring them home, because I thought someday I would make a, like a little art piece out of them. So I put a bunch of them in a bag because I knew Vegas was like this special place for us and good luck or something. And I brought in the Jewish religion, there's a thing called the mezuzah and it goes on the doorpost of your home and it has uh, a prayer in it. And I just put one in a bag and I just put it down. I said, here, this is for good luck. The good luck is for Darren, but it's also for Dan because Darren is his best friend. I'll never forget that night I came home from the hospital and I was putting my son to bed and I was sitting in our glider, you know, those nice chairs with the footrest to, not a rocking chair, but they call them the gliders. Oh, yeah. And I just remember sitting there holding my son, crying, thinking to myself, please don't die. Please don't die. And... You can't even think, I can't even remember what was swirling through my mind at that time. I vividly remember saying, you can't die. You can't die. We are going to take a little break. Be right back. We're back, and Dan just got terrible news about his best friend, Darren. Darren has a brain tumor. He's admitted to the hospital, he's waiting for brain surgery, and Dan is so scared. He and Darren both have really young kids. They're still young. Darren cannot die yet. They have so much to do together. That's what Dan is thinking, up at night, rocking his son. He's thinking about the future they're all supposed to have together. I kind of thought, well, we would grow old and, you know, our families would all move to Florida or something or move to go to California and just lived retired lives together and go golfing and go to Vegas and just do the things we did. And trying to understand the, the implications of him not being here, are ba- they're impossible. But Darren is still here. He's still here, and he's about to have brain surgery. So Dan goes to the hospital to be there when Darren wakes up. There are so many people, Darren's parents, siblings, and friends. There's nothing to do when a person you love is having surgery. There's no way for you to help or contribute. All you can do is just show up. 
And we just sat there. And we waited. And we waited. Brain surgeries take a long time. They look fast on Grey's Anatomy, but they can take like six hours. They can take longer. And hours pass. And unlike in Grey's Anatomy, there aren't a lot of dramatic scenes unfolding around you to entertain you. You can't just open a closet door and find two doctors making out. I've tried. Took turns going to the cafeteria, coming back and forth, and, you know, just everyone was waiting. Somewhere in that same hospital, Darren is having his head sawed open by a brain surgeon. They're going to dig into his brain, cut out the tumor, and hopefully he'll be fine. Brain surgery is always risky, but when you're waiting for someone you love to have it, you can't think that way. You have to just think that no news is good news. As long as no one tells you something has gone wrong, everything is fine. You just drink your bad coffee, and you reread the three magazines in the lobby, and you all make small talk like a person you love is not having brain surgery. You all pretend together until finally the surgeon comes out to tell you what happened. When the surgeon finally does walk out, he tells them, I think we got it all. That it was an oligodendroglioma. Oligodendroglioma. That's the best I can do. It's a type of tumor. It's not good, but it's not the worst. The fact that it was not a geoblastoma was a good thing, because that's the worst. Not usually the worst one. And and then everything is about pathology. So it's rated on a scale of one to four. Four is bad, one's good. He was somewhere, you know, a two to a three. There was different interpretations. You know, when they had their, when they met with their doctor, um, you know, they made a plan to treat. And he did radiation and he did chemo and he kept working. Darren's brain tumor was fully removed, but he still has to do chemo and radiation, you know, because they have to catch all these extra little cells that might have just snuck into your brain that they can't see when they're doing surgery. I know that sounds very technical. But it means that Darren's brain cancer is a chronic condition. Even when he's done with chemo and radiation, he goes back to the doctor every 8 to 12 weeks to get an MRI. It's a little bit like walking the plank. Darren goes to get an MRI and then waits to hear whether he'd be pushed off into the cancer shark-infested waters or if he gets to walk back onto the ship for another 8 to 12 weeks. It's a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. And to get through it, Darren and Dan create their own little rituals. He lived MRI to MRI. And I don't know how many he had, but it was probably at least 80 MRIs. And it started maybe every eight weeks, and then it would go every 12 weeks. And then maybe, you know, that's kind of the furthest out that they would go. But that was the only way they could see if it was going to come back. And I don't know how the ritual started, but, you know, I was kind of someone who could keep things light when they weren't easy to be jovial or light. And so at the time, I believe they would have, at least at the beginning, they would have the MRI and I met them for lunch downtown. And 
then they would have to go back to the doctor for a report. But the essence was MRI, make sure everything is okay, and then we have lunch. And we had a ritual. And that would be kind of the celebration lunch, if you will, that his MRI was clean. So every time you got an MRI, the night before, you think, what am I going to say? Send a text, though, thinking of you, got your back. It doesn't matter. You know, no one could say the right words. The lunch reservation would be set. Allison and Darren would go to the MRI, and Dan would go to work. Just, it's 11 o'clock, haven't heard yet. It's 11.30, haven't heard yet. Where's that email? Where's that text? And then the text would come through. MRI good, or all clean, or... And then you take a deep breath. And so it was a very... It was just like an intersection of love and being scared and support. But that MRI lunch was extremely important. I remember, you know, just every time it was just, you know, you wait on bated breath. For eight years, they held these lunches. Eight years of bated breath and good news. Of MRIs that showed no evidence that the rogue cancer cells survived the chemo and radiation. Eight years of celebratory lunches at a fancy restaurant. A lot happened in those eight years. Dan and Darren each have another kid. They move into different houses. They do all the normal life stuff they plan to do. Amid all this stuff that they never thought they'd have to do. You know, in a, in a, in a way, I think Darren was a, was a certain soulmate of mine. Um, a non-romantic soulmate. There was just mutual love uh, in our friendship. And, you know, there's the fun, maybe non... Did you tell you know, each other that you co- loved each other? You know, it's funny. It's hard for a guy to tell another guy that I love you. And I would tell him that I love him. Um, and he wouldn't say it back. But that's okay. It was either too hard or or whatever. But I, I did not need to hear it. But I needed to say it. Regardless of how hard it might be to say, the two of them have spent the better part of three decades showing it, living it. Because even if our society has not evolved to a point where two straight guys can just openly, verbally express their love for one another, these two guys do love each other. That's why Darren called Dan when he found out about his brain tumor. That's why Dan shows up for these lunches month after month, year after year. That's why, in the winter of 2014, Dan is sitting at that restaurant waiting to celebrate another good MRI. But Darren is late today. I just remember, I believe, getting a text saying there were some issues. And, but, you know, I'll be at lunch soon. So I got there ahead of time. I'm sitting there, and the restaurant's just kind of a very hoity-toity, stuffy restaurant. I just remember sitting there, and I see Darren and Allison walk in, and they just kept going right past the table to the back of the restaurant where there's elevators going down to the bathroom. 
What Darren tells Dan is that the lucky streak is over. The brain tumor is back. There's another brain surgery. More radiation, more chemo, more MRIs, more lunches. Four years pass. And then in 2018, there's another bad MRI. And even worse news, no more surgery. We knew where it was heading, or headed. He's not going to get better. And we don't know how long he has, but we knew it wasn't five years. We knew it wasn't probably four years. And all along, we probably knew it was about a year, is what maybe I thought or what I was guessing. And that's when everything kind of changed. We're going to take another quick break. We're back. There's nothing more that can be done about Darren's brain cancer. Darren stops working, and he's at home now in hospice care, where the goal is no longer to prolong his life, but to just make the rest of it as comfortable as possible. I went to see him every day. I think it was literally almost three months in a row I saw him every day. Not because he needed me per se. It's because I had to see him. It could be 10 minutes. It could be an hour. It could be me literally watching him sleep. It could be me taking him for a walk. It could be a group of people just hanging out with him. He had a leather chair that he would sit in with his feet up. And it wasn't necessarily profound or deep. It was just trying to keep things normal for him when clearly they weren't. It's not normal for Dan either. And as light as he tries to keep things for Darren, the weight of watching his best friend of almost 30 years fade from this earth, it wears on him. I had a lot less patience for my own family and just normal day-to-day things that I would have to do. And it was very heavy. It was very, very heavy because I knew what was going to happen. But I still went there every day. Dan has work. He has kids, a wife, and still he goes every day to sit with his friend. To do the work of love, which is mostly just showing up. One day, Dan shows up, and it's clear that today will be his last visit with Darren. There was an office that turned into kind of his makeshift bedroom with a hospital bed. He was surrounded by everybody, his kids, his parents, his siblings, his in-laws. And it was just, it was a, you know, a, a vocal goodbye session. I don't know how else to say it, but it was lots of I love yous and very emotional. And 
I was not in the room. I very much questioned my place, even being in the house right now. I just went in, I kissed him on the forehead, and I left. It wasn't my place to, to you know, hang out <laughs> and be part of it. I, I, I did not feel comfortable doing that. So I, I, I left the room, obviously emotional. I went back to kind of the kitchen to be out of the way. And I just pretty much told his, his brother, I said, look, I, you know, this was family time. I'm going to go, but, you know, please keep me posted. And, you know, love to everybody. So I left, I went to my car and I just kind of sat there in disbelief. I was just parked on the street. I just kind of sat there and I couldn't drive away. I just could not drive away. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I couldn't drive away. All of a sudden, I see come walking outside was, was Darren's mom. And she came to my car window and she told me, please come inside. You're like family. And I wasn't going to say no. <laughs> and I am forever, forever grateful that that happened. And so I don't even think we spoke, just walked back inside. So I walked back into the room, and at that time it was just Darren, you know, was, was unconscious, you know, just there, and his wife Allison. And I walked in, and see Allison there, but no eye contact. It was just sitting there for a minute. And I just kind of was by him and just kind of rubbing his shoulders, and I just broke down, bawling hysterically. And then Allison started crying too. And I just kind of grabbed her hand, and I just felt spiritually and electrically connected to Darren forever at that moment. Darren died on May 20th, 2019. When Dan and I speak, it's been about six months since his friend's death, and while he's talked about his friendship with Darren and about Darren's death, I cried quietly at least three times, and if you've been listening to this podcast, you'll notice that Dan either has not cried or is a very, very quiet crier. And just like there are lots of ways to love a person, lots of different ways to communicate that love, there are lots of ways to grieve and to express grief. But Dan reached out to us, to this podcast specifically, because trying to figure out how to express this love and this grief has been really hard for him. I'm a guy. And the way guys usually relate with each other is not the same way that I feel girlfriends can relate to each other on a more emotional level. And I found myself to be highly emotional. So I'm like on Google searching like guys losing their, you know, man losing their best friend and like stories come up about losing their dog. And I'm thinking to myself, like, are guys, do they just not grieve or emote in the same way as women do? Do their friends not die? Is that the thing? Do men just not die? 
Like, or do all men who die die friendless? What is it? Or just with dogs? Like, I yeah, I just think it's more. You see, you know, it's it's more normal to see women crying and relying on each other and being emotional and talking about their feelings. And I have friends and I go, I can go certain places with some friends, but I just feel I'm limited a little bit. And after he died, I started therapy, which I loved and I continue to love. It's like the fastest hour of my week for me to try to deal with things. And it's like continual processing. And I think one of my one day after a session, I just went home and I started writing. And stream of consciousness, it wasn't edited. It wasn't really even meant for anybody to read. I just wrote and it kept going and going and going. I have no idea why I submitted it to you guys. I don't. But as I, at least at that time, but I think I was crying out for an outlet to try to figure out why grieving feels like an individual sport to me versus maybe being more of a team sport. Dan has found comfort in writing, in therapy, in his wife and children, and in showing up for Darren's family the way he and Darren showed up for one another. He's a keeper of Darren's college stories. He's a keeper of their jokes. He's a keeper of all kinds of things those kids might want to know about their dad someday. You wrote in your email that um, as more time passes, you need his family probably more than they need you. In the aftermath of his passing, the pain could stop when I was with them for a period of time. And... I don't know why that was. It just, things didn't hurt as bad if I was visiting in his house or spending time with his kid or, or whatever. It just, that, the pain went away a little bit. Dan still shows up for Darren's family. For Darren's sake, for his kid's sake, for Dan's own sake. I feel like every time I can do something positive, whether it's hanging out, whether it's making them laugh, whether it's attempting to do a stupid cartwheel, which I'm not good at for their youngest one, I just feel every time I can do something for them, it's like giving him a solid, giving him a high five, that they're okay. But I think it always stayed with me the day he was diagnosed. He said, go make sure Allison is okay. And it's not even, you know, you know, of course I'm going to make sure they're okay. I don't know what I can do except be myself. Dan is still himself and he's not. Grief changes us. Losing a fundamental pillar in our lives changes us. And even though, in our conversation, Dan keeps saying he doesn't want to make this story about him, it is about him. His grief for his best friend is about the loss of a relationship. 
And in a culture that prizes romantic relationships above all else, followed closely by the familial relationships that come along with a romantic relationship, where does that leave friendship? We have such limited language for relationships that aren't romantic and aren't family. Saying best friend kind of works, but also makes me feel like a grade schooler. And like a grade schooler, I have multiple best friends. Most people do. We want to just be able to show each other, to show the world how important a person is to us, how much they bring to our lives. Even if we never have a gift registry with them or have our anniversary celebrated by our children. I think that grief might always be a bit of an individual sport. Because even when you're all grieving the same person, like everyone is grieving Darren, you're all grieving different versions of Darren. Darren was a husband, he was a dad, a brother, a son, a colleague, and he was Dan's absolute best friend. Dan's grief isn't any bigger or smaller, any more or less valuable or real than any of those other brands of grief. It's just different. He was just like a, uh, a, a, a perfect match for friendship. He was my non-romantic soulmate. He was someone who, I use the word, he was my reflex. If I had like a down moment at work or whatever, just pick up the phone, call. I didn't even think about it. And I'm just so glad that I got to be part of him dying in a weird way. I think it would, you know, in one respect, it'd be easier to just not have to deal because you don't want to deal with the pain. But that was never an option for me. I just, I didn't have a choice. It was instinct. I just had to be there with him. And I'm just grateful I had the time with him. And I will always be a better person because I had him in my life. I'm Nora McNerney, and this has been Terrible. Thanks for asking. Our producer is Marcel Malikibu. Hannah Mikakras is our project manager. Jordan Turgeon is our digital producer. Hans Buto used to be on this team, and he wrote the first draft of this episode. And I miss you, buddy, and uh, love you forever. Phyllis Fletcher is our editor. Production assistants from Jacob Maldonado Medina. Uh, our bosses are Lauren D. and Lily Kim. You know, just great ladies. This episode was mixed by Corey Schreppel. Just a real, just a heck of a guy. Our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson, and we are a production of APM, Adorably Practical Mallets. When I'm angry inside, don't want to take it out on you. Just one of those days. Hey, don't, don't take, take it, it personal. personal. <laughs> I just want to be all hey, alone. Hey. And you think I treat you wrong. <laughs> I don't know what the rest of the... <laughs>